can spirituality and the law coexist? We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make the show? And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. We're going to talk about everything tonight. <laughs> Usually, I, I, I'm a little more specific than that. Uh, Jeff Rasley is back with us. Uh, he's been with us before, obviously, if he's back with us. Uh, and we're probably going to just uh, take up uh, where we left off. He's the author of 10 books. He's the uh, former lawyer and social justice warrior <laughs> and uh, really uh, led a very interesting life uh, and uh, writes about all sorts of things, nonfiction, including the law and spirituality and all sorts of things like that, uh, travel, uh, and has written nonfiction as well. So uh, we'll, we'll talk to him uh, and resume where we left off. Interesting enough, uh, where we left off was uh, a very significant date in history. Before I bring him in and we get to talk to him, uh, got to bring talk about one sponsor. Let's see, who we, who do we have tonight, Johnny? It's Cardcash.com. Yeah, it's Cardcash.com. Now, uh, Cardcash.com. Founded in 2009, Cardcash.com provides an answer to two common questions. What can I do with all these gift cards I will never use, and how can I easily save money? Well, Cardcash pays cash for unwanted gift cards, and I'm sure you have a lot of them, and then sells those cards at a discount. Make money, save money. It's just that simple. There's a link in the description, Cardcash.com. I hope you will use that. There's no promo code or anything needed uh, to get involved and get started. You can make money and save money, Cardcash.com. I do appreciate your patronizing the sponsors and i do want speaking of patronizing uh we have a patreon page where if you are sick of uh hearing me talk about the ads at the beginning of every program and at the end of every program you can go to our patreon page link is in the description and at the basic membership level which is only one dollar a month less than a cup of coffee a month folks you can get every audio episode of the program absolutely ad free Plus, you get some extra little bonuses like music videos and uh, special blog posts and stuff like that that we put out just for the Patreon members. So it's a great deal. Link is in the description. Of course, if you want to uh, join at the higher levels, you can, you may, and those get more benefits. But at the $1 level, you get the show without ads. And that's uh, all I have to say about the Patreon stuff. I think we've gone on long enough. Now, as I mentioned, Jeff Rasley is an author of uh, 10 books, a former lawyer, social justice warrior, uh, all all around Renaissance man, spiritual guru, gone from uh, studying to uh, be a minister to being told, hey, you're more of a Buddhist than a Calvinist. Uh, and so he's led a very interesting life and been all around. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and welcome back, Jeff Reslin, to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Jeff, welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Good to be back with you. Uh, it's great to have you here. Now, do you remember the date of your last appearance here? I don't remember the exact date. Okay. It seems like it was about six weeks ago. Right, it was. It was January 5th, uh, which uh, if, if people say, well, that seems like it was, uh, I think, what was it, about 
18 hours, 16 hours, something like that before the great insurrection. Uh, <laughs> and, well, we had actually talked about uh, a little bit about Donald Trump and uh, you knew Mike Pence when he was young. And I, I actually said on in the pro in, during the program, I said, I want people to stay home and not go to Washington, D.C. because they're going to burn down the Capitol. And they, if you go there and I said, Right think right wing people, left wing people, anybody who's saying stay out of D.C. tomorrow because they're going to try and blame it on you. They're going, there's going to be trouble and there's, they're going to blame it on you. I said that during the program 18 hours before it happened, 16 hours, whatever it is. Uh, and then we heard from all Republicans who are still loyal to Donald Trump. How could any of us and anybody have foreseen the, the violence that was going to happen on, on well here i am dumb matt napple calling it 18 hours before i think it, it's not uh unlikely that a a scholar a political scholar might have some clue that it's going to happen if i could figure it out well well yeah and the, the context of our conversation was uh about the last book that i wrote right which, has the uh, sort of one well one of the the climactic scene to part one of the book was the riot that donald trump started the police riot um back on his famous photo op with the bible when he you know cleared the streets so that he could walk across from the white house and stand in front of saint john's church and hold up a bible probably upside down for a photo op and um so we, we were talking about violence inspired by donald trump and his craziness so but yeah you you were right on i was struggling to get the, the book cover up there i brought up the amazon page twice the amazon page is in the link uh the book is called anarchist republican republican assassin and uh basically you know you wrote this as a fiction book because um, the truth was just too hard to, to write about it at the at the time it was going on. But the the basic plot of the story really is about uh, somebody whose mind was twist uh, a a good Republican who kind of went crazy by the cult leader. Uh, is, I, is that a good summary of it? Yeah, uh, I mean the main character is a guy who, as a young man, was an anarchist. Uh, terrorist but who had a conversion experience the other way uh went to business school and became a very successful businessman republican establishment uh guy in indiana um worked with mike pence and um but still had a very strong sense of values and care for other people and uh was during the course of the lockdown, after he just lost his wife uh, to cancer, he, you know, watching Donald Trump every night on TV talking about the pandemic and what an incompetent asshole <laughs> Trump was about that. And then seeing the riots break out after um, the uh, George Floyd uh, police murder. Um, he just started losing it and, you know, basically had a psychotic breakdown and thought he was an anarchist. Wow. Um, I think anarchy is uh, growing. The, uh, the idea of anarchy as a uh, um, political um, 
a model for a lot of people. A lot of people feel like, uh, and, and I think people are really confused about, you know, the basic people, people who didn't go to law school, people who weren't political science majors, uh, they're confused about the labels and the labels they put on themselves. And I see it across the board from conservatives to liberals, progressive socialists, whatever. People throw these words around without understanding what they are. But I'm seeing a lot of people who really are expressing anarchist ideas. They hate government, all forms of it, like it's an unnecessary thing. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, that's a dangerous place to be in, where people just have disdain for any form of government. Do you agree? I do. And I think it's interesting that the extreme right and the extreme left sort of meet at anarchism. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's almost like uh, like it's a sphere. And if you go too far right or left, you're going to come around and both end up in the same place. Uh, it, it's a very unusual place to be. But I'm seeing more that idea expressed more and more by people who think they're conservatives or think of themselves as libertarians or think of themselves as uh, far, very far left. They come around to this idea what government isn't necessary at all. And I, I'd hate to think where, we, where we'd be without government. But in our last conversation, just if I can uh, kind of um, recap some of the things that were said then that are still relevant now, you mentioned knowing Mike Pence when he was young, and you described his unique personality in that he is a uh, very by the law guy. He believes in the law, the letter of the law, and and that kind of stuff. But he's also a party loyalist. Loyalist, and I think you mentioned that your wife said he looks up at Trump like an adoring kitten, or um, or, or <laughs> something like. And he definitely does have a man crush on, on Donald Trump. But here is Donald Trump now insisting that he overturned the election. At the same time, he's calling for Pence's head. To, to an angry mob and Pence still stayed loyal to Trump and loyal to the law in in the same breath which is to me a fascinating uh tight wire to walk because most normal people would have said this guy just called for my hanging I'm not going to react uh, like a friend to him and stay loyal to him just your take on Pence's reaction to January 6th yeah I think that it reflects um, an attitude that a lot of extremely religious people have, which is on the one hand, um, they're they're fundamentalist about the Bible or the law, you know, whatever is the holy book of their religion, but they also want the strong man leader, um, you know, the guy who stands up uh, in the pulpit with the black robe and tells them the truth, and. I think with the Pence-Trump relationship, it it had to be a really weird, uh, conflicting uh, relationship within Pence's head because he had to, you know, justify those two, um, in this case, really sort of opposing forces because, you know, typically... You, it's going to be somewhat unified in the sense that, you know, the preacher, the, the leader is, uh, is speaking the same law as the holy book. Right. But in this case, you know, to, 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 to try to um, make Trump line up with what has been 
uh, sort of traditional evangelical right-wing conservative Republican values, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's really <laughs> coming up with an algorithm that I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's fascinating that people can, uh, and I know he has a grip on the Christian right, which to me, they they look down on my behavior, and I'm told often by and and this is shocking to me that I'm told often by evangelists that I'm going to hell, and I've never done half the kind of things or been uh, outspoken about it and public about my sins as Donald Trump has. Uh, so they're very quick to cast judgment on somebody like me, <laughs> oh, who's a nobody, but somebody who's out there and displaying the most non-christian behavior that you can imagine they look up to him as a faithful christian and a guy who's leading the way it, it's really uh it's mind-boggling to me to to, to see that and, and try to figure it out uh we're in a cult-like situation uh and i don't think you can deprogram uh, people en masse. You can deprogram people one at a time when they escape from a cult, but I don't think you can do it to 75 million people. Do you? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, this is a really horrible thing to say, but I wish the, the COVID virus was more targeted. <laughs> well, it's people who agreed with Trump that it was a hoax and that it was going to vanish the, you know, the day after the election would be the ones who get it if anybody has to get it. But something, um, when um, I, I wrote a, a, an, an earlier book, um, which is called Polarized, The Case for the C Civility in the Time of Trump, and that book was written, uh, or at least started right after the 2016 election, and then finished about a, a year later. And what I, in that, in the course of writing that book, I interviewed, I think it was 27 um, Trump supporters and asked them, you know, why, why do you support Trump? Um, what is it that you see in him? And, and, you know, those kind of questions. And some of the people I interviewed were evangelical Christians. Um, and uh, the one uh, answers of this one woman have, have really stuck with me because in a way it's so bizarre, her reasoning uh, in terms of if you are a logical, rational thinker, because what she said was, yes, I, I, I understand he's, a, he's been a terrible sinner, um, but he is for all the right things and god often chooses someone who uh is a not a perfect person and david <laughs> king david is the you know the one they always use as the former example and so i asked her so do, do you really equate trump with someone like you know king david and and she did she she believed, I don't know if she still does, that Trump was chosen by God because we are at such a critical time in history uh, that the apocalypse is coming. And 
he, a leader like him, is needed to lead America back to becoming a Christian nation so that we will be ready to fight the forces of evil when Jesus comes back to earth. Now, that's a, um, it's almost a primitive idea. I, I don't, and I, I, I kind of hesitate to, to use those words because I mean, I know I'm insulting people who, who believe in that. And I know some are pretty close to me, but I had a lady on uh, last week who was a um, has written several books about the end of days, and it's a very prominent thought right now that we are living in the end of days, the biblical uh, described end of days. And I think it's because, and, and every generation has seen it, and every generation has made predictions about it. And uh, it never comes to, and all they do is kind of move move the goalposts a little bit, bit back every time they're wrong about that. But uh, she wrote about the Antichrist and identifying him, and uh, so I had to ask her straight up because of all the conjecture. Now there are people who <laughs> they they name now uh, as prob as possible Antichrist and the Pope and Trump and Putin and all those people. But she said no, it's none of them. And, but I have to read the books. I have, to, I have to buy all, all three books to kind of figure out who it is. <laughs> she, didn't think, she didn't think it was you, though, right, Matt? I, I didn't even ask her that. <laughs> I should have. Yeah. Oh, that, that didn't occur to me. Uh, but is that dangerous thinking when we uh, revert back to the Bible as um, not basing our faith on necessarily, but basing our politics on? I think it's very dangerous thinking, um, and it's interesting how uh, Christians, but other religion, other people that are uh, advocates for other religions do this too. So it's not unique to Christianity, but Christianity has such a, a very clear sort of almost map to you know the end of days uh, in the Book of Revelation, and. Why it's dangerous is that when people really think, okay, the end of the world is coming, they can become very irresponsible. Yeah. And, you know, why, why would you care about uh, casting your vote responsibly? Um, why would you care about um, behaving responsibly when you know uh, the end of the world is coming. Well, the only reason you'd care is if those sorts of things are required for you to be on the right side <laughs> when the world blows up so you get to go to heaven. But um, it's I, I, I had a friend years ago uh, who was a lawyer, um, who has really had a very uh, sharp mind in so many ways, but he was a strict Calvinist. And so he believed that before the beginning of time, God had determined whether he was going to heaven or not. And he was convinced that God had determined that he was going to heaven. So he had decided that that meant he could do anything he wanted to. <laughs> He ended up going to federal prison. <laughs> but he, he, he was one of, uh, I mean, he was a very entertaining guy in some ways because it was such a strange contrast that he was this 
a Calvinist fundamentalist, but yet thought he could commit any sin that he felt like committing, and he committed a lot of them um, because he was convinced that God had determined he would be going to heaven. And he thought, and on the other hand, if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter because I'm going to hell anyway. Wow. Well, that that's that was my first thought when you started saying that, when, you know, about what, what it means to people. If it were me, and I knew for certain that we're, you know, whatever the, the time frame was, say three months, whatever, this is the end of days and we have three months. I would, my first thought would be, well, I don't have enough time to redeem my sinner life in, in three months. So I'm going to hell. There's no way I'm not. So I might as well run up my credit cards to the max. I might as well, um, do everything I want since I'm going to hell anyway. I might as well, you know, go sin crazy now just because I don't. I don't. I might as well make it worth it, right? Pay for my ticket. Um. So, but uh, you gave me an idea for a black comedy with that the, the guy who uh, thought he was going to heaven and ended up going to federal prison. If we name the federal prison or give it a nickname like heaven, in the end, it it all comes out to a very cool black comedy, dark comedy. <laughs> Um, but since you brought up the, you know, civility and can we get back to that, uh, that idea has, uh, you know, when Biden first, uh, found out that he definitely won the election that Friday after election day, he was talking about healing and his, his number one, uh, thing was healing. And then as soon as, uh, the, he, he was in office and, and inaugurated, uh, the Republicans who, did, who wanted to move on were saying, well, we need to heal. <laughs> now all of a sudden they were on the healing side. Uh, is healing possible? Yeah, I, I am not optimistic. I, I actually was optimistic when I, I wrote the book, Polarized. And, um, <laughs> but I, I, I became less and less optimistic the further we got into the four years of Trump. I'm not totally pessimistic at this point, but I think what I, when I wrote the book, what I, I really thought was needed was a grassroots movement for civility because I just, I didn't think it was going to come from above. I thought we look at our congressional leaders and, you know, you go back to when Mitch McConnell said what we're going to do with Obama as president is in his first term, we're going to make sure he doesn't get reelected. So we're going to oppose everything he does. And then as he, he actually got reelected. So Mitch McConnell said, we're still going to oppose everything he does. Um, And so with that sort of super hyper, partisanship attitude in Congress, I thought, you know, that we can't look to those people for leadership in uh, regaining a civil discourse. And I thought, but it could come in kind of a grassroots movement. And I, I started a, uh, an effort uh, at, at that on Facebook, but an organization that, that I joined that I had great hopes for was originally named Better Angels, and they had to change their name to Braver Angels because of a, uh, a copyright issue. But anyway, this organization is, I think it's a wonderful idea. And it, they go around the country and they put on workshops where they b- bring uh, Democrats and Republicans together, put them through an intensive weekend of, of really sort of mediation exercises and and to the point where they can talk to each other and they can discuss politics civilly 
And that's what I, I did on Facebook, on a Facebook forum. Um, and it can work. It really can work. But just like you were talking about uh, people in cults, you, can, you can't unbrainwash, deprogram the whole cult at one time. You can only do it one at a time. I'm afraid that's where we are politically. I mean, I think your point was, was right on. And so Braver Angels is doing this wonderful effort. But if you look at the numbers, the statistics of people that they brought in, well, you know, oh, they started in 20, 2016 or 2017, right after the election. Okay, so four, four and a half years later, how many people have they actually brought from being uncivil to being civil? And, you know, it's probably in the hundreds. Right. So, you know, when Trump had 74 million voters, uh, that's going to take, uh, you know, not years, not decades, but centuries before you make an impact. So, uh, I, you know, if we could have just more and more efforts like that, um, maybe, but, uh, I, you know, when you just, you look at what happened on January 6th and then, and you think, okay, well, that's, you know, that's going to turn people off of Trump. Okay. You know, that's it. And people are going to desert him in droves. And then you look at polls and it shows like 80% of Republicans, still support him would vote for him again if if given the chance um right. don't think he did anything particularly wrong i mean i just throw up my hands right yeah i it's, it's baffling because i always said if he throw mike penson under the bus what makes do you think he's not gonna throw you under the bus meaning any one of his followers but um i think and and uh, i'm glad you you kind of outlined that whole idea about um how to create civility because i've been thinking a great deal about this and i had a lady on last week um who fancies herself i i don't want to put the i think she fancies herself as a member of the idw uh do you know what the idw is the intellectual intellectual dark web made up of people like jordan peterson and gad sad and uh the weinstein brothers and people like that they are mostly right wing but they consider themselves um the the like the uh kind of keepers of the flame of of intellectualism and fair thought but they are absolutely um biased right wing but the part of their mantra is um, this idea of civility and that we shouldn't demonize people who have different ideas. Dialogue is what will work and, and what democracy is all about. And this is their mantra. They say this all the time, that not demonizing um, the op opponent. So I had this lady on. Her name is Candace uh, Horbeck, and she has a podcast, and she happens uh, to have a history in the adult industry. She's a, a former porn star who is very conservative now and, and, uh, and beliefs in, um, in the things the IDW stands for. So she had Gad Sad on her show, and Gad Sad was talking all about this non, uh, don't demonize the enemy, you know, be open to uh, discussing their ideas. And so we were talking, I brought up the idea Pornhub, 
was uh, what they're calling a victim of cancel culture, meaning Visa and MasterCard uh, asked them to enforce rules about who can put pornography on their website. And she said it's this very far right wing Christian group that's behind this all stuff. And she was just kind of going off on how evil they were. And I said, wait a minute, you're saying not to demonize people. And here you are um, just kind of demonizing these people. So I, I brought that back to her and said, don't we have to assume good intent on these people? So that the reason these people are going after pornography is not necessarily because they're evil. And I understand if you're in the pornography business and they're attacking your business, you're going to feel like they're the enemy. But their intent is not bad. Their intent is that they really think pornography they truly believe pornography uh, creates a problem in society, which is why they are going after it. So the dialogue should be whether or not it truly is harmful, not to automatically assume the worst intent and they're, de- they're demon people and they're the enemy and they're just trying to hurt my business. They are trying to hurt that business, but they are hurt, trying to hurt that business with the best of intention. So I think that gets lost, that idea that we – but I do think that's the first place, and I don't know how we kind of foster that idea of stop assuming the people who have different ideas than you are doing it from bad intent. They have good intent. Now, what is driving that intention that they believe they're they're doing the right thing? Do you, Am I on the right track with any of this? Do you understand where I'm going with this, or and do you agree with me on any of it? Yeah, I, I do, and um, I mean, I guess I I have um, taken on that issue on a more directly political um, forum in terms of like let's take um, white separatists or the poor boys or QAnon, um, bad boys. <laughs> yeah, poor boys is John John uh, uh, John Fogarty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, the proud boys. <laughs> why they're proud, but anyway. Um, so you know, the, I think most of those people um, are convinced that they are advocating a good cause. Right. You know, you know, people who think that racism is evil, um, who you know want to want to sing kumbaya and we all love each other and you know peace love and that sort of thing uh, of course look at those people and think well they're vile they're evil um but th- the trouble is when you're you're dealing with values that that are just in direct conflict like if you think you know, separating the races is really a good thing and not just for your race, but for all race. And you're trying to talk to someone who thinks that is that in and of itself is evil. You know, where do you go from there? And then um, secondly, we have a political culture now because of cable news largely where people, red people, blue people have a different understanding of the facts. You know, I mean, the Fox News will report um, political news differently than MSNBC will. And blue voters will watch MSNBC. They won't watch Fox. Red voters, just the opposite. And so you have this sort of dual level of people on opposite sides who actually do have 
conflicting values and they have different realities that they, you know, in which they understand we are operating in. Right. So it's uh, with those, you know, those two sets of differences, it's really hard to see where you find much common ground. Now, there is <laughs> historically one way that common ground is found. And sociologists call it superordinate goals where a community uh, a nation is united behind one goal because sort of survival depends on it so war you know world war ii there was very little um uh hyper partisanship you know every you know rose of fdr got reelected in you know massive landslides i mean the country was you know 90 percent behind the war effort um right after 9 11 you know the same thing so that's sort of historically it's been war i mean what liberals would love to see happen is the country view climate change that way <laughs> and you know if if you recognize uh global warming climate change as a as a truly um existential threat not just to the nation but to the world you know you you can you know unite with and you know get on board and try to work with everybody else who agrees with that but unfortunately at this point once again instead of that being a superordinate goal in which we all unite behind it becomes divisive right so unless we go unless we go to war again i you know i just uh, i don't see how it's going to happen uh, in the foreseeable future right and even even like with um oh echo 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 um 9-11 uh people uh who who uh keep talking about well the day after 9-11 we were so united well it shouldn't take a war but uh, i like to point out that we weren't all that united for all that long because it wasn't it wasn't long after 9-11 that probably days with, with the rubble was still on the ground and alex jones was out there with a megaphone saying it was an inside job and uh, then we had different people that, saying that oh you know wanting to kill all muslims or, you know this is a muslim thing rather than a uh a extreme uh extremist islamic group it was a muslim thing that this is how this is what muslims do so we were it, that wasn't far behind Oh, days behind 9-11. So, it, you know, even that doesn't seem to um, bring us together for long. It, it might for a couple of hours at best, but the, but the, the idea of climate change, now that you're talking about, again, uh, the idea of alternate uh, alternate facts or alternative facts, as Kelly Conway, Kellyanne Conway called them, um, the argument should really be with climate change. And I understand that people think, that might think that it's uh, not a man-made phenomenon, so therefore man has no control over it. That's the that's the debate whether whether we can do anything about it. But to the idea that the climate is not—if you're looking at Texas tonight, you know, paying attention to any of the, there's no doubt that climate globally the the climate is changing in in a lot of ways and uh, ways that are showing itself to be more prominent every year. How can people still be in denial about that? Shouldn't we just be talking about can we do anything to 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 
slow it down, reverse it or anything at this point, rather than denying that it exists like uh, some people on, on the far right just are, are hell-bent on doing. Well, and we just experienced that with the virus. I mean, yeah. what, what, what more, I mean, since 9-11 could we interpret as a more immediate threat to national security uh, than a pandemic? And yet that became a political issue. You know, people on the far right saying it was a hoax, people disputing over whether you should wear a mask or not. Um, and again, Trump was a major factor in the divisiveness about it, but also um, the the cable news networks. I mean, the and not not just cable news, but the whole the way the media has split along political lines. And I think we we got into this last time, but you know, when I was a kid, um, there were three national TV networks and the news shows on all three of them were pretty much the same. You just chose which anchor man you like best. And AP and UPI were the two sources for uh, all of the news that wasn't local. I mean, we all got the same picture of reality. And so you didn't have, I mean, you had Republicans and Democrats who disagreed about how to solve problems. I mean, it was basically disagreements about, you know, how do we solve problems as opposed to, is it even a problem or not? Right. Uh, so, and, but that's where we are now with the, the way that the, the media, uh, interprets reality and, and and interprets it in a way that it thinks its audience, whether it's right or left, wants to get it. And, you know, I mean, I think we, uh, a lot of blame can be laid on the, uh, at the foot of uh, Rupert Murdoch, but also uh, I think early AM talk radio, uh, the wonderful, great, uh, uh, Medal of Honor winner Rush Limbaugh, who, bless his soul, just departed God's green earth, um, I think was a big part of that, too. You know, he politicized news. So uh, I, I don't see that ending. And as long as that's the way we uh, get our understanding of what's going on in the world that it's it's bifurcated along those political lines then you know how how do we how do we work together for common goals when at one side you'll say oh well this is a problem and in the old days we'd say okay well we might disagree on how to solve it but we all know <laughs> what a problem is and now it's no that's not a problem that right. doesn't even exist yeah uh, and it's funny that, you know, the right is, is really known for saying, well, we're the, pro uh, and I'm Republicans are, we're the party of personal responsibility. And so part of this, like you're talking about the media and the changes in that, when we were growing up, the three stations, as you mentioned, only covered a half an hour from six to six thirty, and then 11 to 11 30. It wasn't 24 seven. Uh, but part of this responsibility, I think is part on the public who demands this 24 seven, um, attention 
deficit news uh, cycle with that it never ends and it's looping all day long. And it uh, came up the other day when a very uh, loyal Trumpist friend of mine uh, said about the impeachment, now that the smoke screen's over, can we focus on what's really going on in Washington, D.C.? So, Mike, I had to be a smart ass and said, sure. Well, why don't you describe uh, what H.R. 1 and H.R. 801 uh, say and how you feel about them? You need to know what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> and I said, well, that's this is the problem. You're You're hoping to get what what the news that you get from somebody who's going to spoon feed you what it is and exactly how you should think about it and all that stuff you want to know what's really going on in washington you have to do the work yourself look up these bills and read the resolution for yourself oh who has time for that well uh, if the per the party of personnel responsibility should have some time for that. Uh, well, we can't all sit at a computer all day like you do and, and read these things and digest them. Well, then you really don't want to know what's really going on in Washington. And you're admitting that the impeachment was not the smokescreen. It was your own laziness. So, uh, you know, I hate to bury people like that, but I think I did. But I didn't move further in swaying him into, you know, find out for yourself and stop blaming the media. Well, you know, another change uh, that's happened uh, in our political culture is that the party bosses don't have near the power that they used to because, right. you know, in like asking just a, a typical voter, okay, what do you know about the actual bills that are working their way through Congress? And we could, you know, you could, the response could be like your response would be, well, I've looked it up and I've researched it and yeah, I can discourse on it. Um, well, we used to just have more faith that our political leaders, the chairman of the party, um, you know, they, they were doing that for us. And so as long as we trusted that our uh party leaders were good people, you know, had our best interest as their voters at heart. Um, we trusted that, that they would do that for us, at least to a large extent. Whereas now, uh, you know, people think that they really know what's going on because they follow it on Facebook or because they've watched their favorite cable news show about it or they've listened to their AM radio talk host or their podcaster. Um, and I, you know, there just is the, the whole party structure doesn't mean what it used to mean. I mean, it, it's still, the two parties still are the source of how we get to choose our candidates, but you know, there is no way that the Republican establishment wanted Donald Trump to be its candidate. There right. No way. <laughs> They wanted that. Right. They, they, and most of them, many of them, I should say, actually predicted what is happened, what happened to the GOP in 2020. And Lindsey Graham the other day, I think it was two days ago, came out and said uh, he's trying to get Mitch McConnell and other Mitt Romney and people like that in the Senate to, to kind of bury the hatchet with Donald Trump because we can't win without Donald Trump. And I was like, that is the opposite of reality because the, the fact is you had an easy path. If you're a Republican, you had an easy path to the white house in 2016. Anybody you ran against Hillary was probably going to win because she was the most, uh, uh, she had the second highest on uh, uh, the 
second highest unfavorable rating of any human being ever polled uh, they ever did that poll about. Now, the other one's Adolf Hitler. So she was highly unpopular. Any Republican was going to beat her. But they also had the Senate and the House. They lost all three of the White House, the Senate, and uh, the House of Representatives under Trump. And now they're still believing that we can't win without Trump. Uh, my thing is, no, you can't win with that with Trump because 81 people did not come out to vote for Joe Biden. They came out to vote against Donald Trump. And next time it'll be 91 million if you stick with that horse that, that you rode in on. So uh, it just baffles me the logic behind all that now because I do think you, you're right. The GOP establishment did not want them. They foresaw this. And now they back themselves into the corner. And instead of coming back and catering to the uh, the centrist part of the uh, of that party, they're catering towards the fringe nutcase part. The, we can't win without the KKK. We can't win without the Proud Boys. We can't win without you know all those fringe groups that are out there queuing on people. Instead of saying we don't need them, nobody needs them. We're better off rebuilding the party with normal people <laughs> uh, so i you know that whole thing just baffles me i think you're right about that though the, the establishment doesn't want him yeah but and the, the trouble is in so many of the locales where Re republicans have hung on to the local offices and the congressional seats is you've got a high percentage of trump voters in those locales that you know the, the really red areas and so, I mean, I think Lindsay, Lindsey Graham is partly right in the sense that he probably can't win without Trump voters. Oh, yeah, now. South Carolina would be a tough one, definitely. Yeah, well, Indiana, my home state, is the same way. I mean, both of, uh, well, originally, both of our senators said they were going to object to the certification vote on January 6th. Uh, they both, and I give them some props for this, ended up being among that small group who said they were going to vote for the objections, and then they backed off and they didn't vote for them because of January 6th. But one of the two, Braun, is still very much uh, a Trump supporter. Uh, the other one, Young, has has backed off, and he's he's trying to sort of create distance between him and Trump, and setting himself up as somebody who can still appeal to Trump voters, uh, but is a responsible, sane Republican. But we have, I mean, our just newly elected Attorney General is a Trump fanatic, um, and. Uh, you know, he, his, he, he ran for Congress and lost, but then ran for attorney general and won. And his, um, or I'm sorry, ran for Senate and lost to Braun. But his campaign, three campaigns now, because he was in Congress and successfully then ran for Senate, now ran for attorney general. The whole theme of all three of his last campaigns is I am as Trump as you can be. Wow. And... And he and he's won. So now, I, in in your intro tonight and in the last time, I kind of uh, mentioned uh, all your traveling and your spiritual journeys around the world. It's a it's a conundrum on how this fits into your personal psyche because you are this kind of enlightened guy, spiritually enlightened guy, and you you you're curious and and learned about all these different belief systems been around the world. It's hard to imagine how. 
that fits in with with a political being as well be, because most people who are who are on a path towards spirituality um politics is the last thing they're thinking about so explain to me how, how it fits into how you how you walk this tight wire, wire between um being politically um active and interested and still being you know, holding on to some sense of spirituality <laughs> Well, I don't think it's a very tight wire. I, uh, okay, explain. I, I think it's a, a great uh, wide highway. Um, I, I mean, I, I've never felt any particular conflict. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't feel any particular conflict. Um, I don't I'd, think Jesus did. No. I think Jesus was a politician in some way. But if I say that to a... a a uh, literal wordist uh, Bible holder, I'm going to get probably stoned. But uh, I, I, the, I think Jesus was a political actor. Uh, do you? Yeah, I mean the you know the Jewish Council was the sort of the local government, and of course Rome was uh, the ultimate government in uh, in Judea in Jesus's time. But I mean, he started a mass movement, and it was clearly aimed in some ways against uh, the Jewish council. And, you know, so, yeah, uh, I mean, I think, you know, Gandhi was certainly uh, a politician. Uh, I think all the Muhammad was definitely, I mean, he, he was he was a political, military and religious leader. Um, so I, I I think you know if you if you want to be purely religious, uh, you know, be like one of the Irish uh, um, saints who go off in their little stone caves and pray by themselves. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, not Hermans, hermits, but those other hermits. And so I, you know, I've never felt a conflict when my major in college was a triple major of um, religion, politics, uh, and philosophy. So I've intellectually always been interested in how those things fit together, but I just don't, you know, I don't see, I, I mean, I guess I would say, if you have a spiritual sense where you know there is uh, a connection um, between yourself and the universe and you care about that connection <laughs> being a positive one then you ought to be doing things that affect the rest of the universe in a positive way and so that should lead you to being politically active. And I don't think, you know, I mean, I don't think the only way to positively affect your community in the world is through politics. In fact, I think a lot of people that do really wonderful things don't necessarily have any involvement in politics. And I think you can do really wonderful things by being very active in the right kind of church, mosque, or synagogue. Um, but I do think ultimately that 
you know, the desire to do good works is going to bump into politics. I was just going to say that you can't, no matter what you try to do in this life to try to affect positive change, somebody is going to see it as a negative for them. Just like the, the girl who, who sees the Christian right as, who's trying to shut down uh, Pornhub. Uh, because they believe that porn addiction is uh, adversely affecting society. They have this true belief about that. She sees them as the devil and people who are just try trying to destroy their business. So no matter what you try to do, even if you have a good intention and believe you're making a, a better change in the world, somebody is going to say, well, that's not a better change. Uh, and uh, we, I can look at this idea of um, the, the Green New Deal. <laughs> As something that that fits into that, because um, I think AOC has been totally demonized by people who know nothing about her, nothing about her. Somehow the right has made her out the the uh, mostly Fox News, Tucker and Sean, uh, who have made her out to be Satan incarnate. Uh, and I know people who just think this Green Deal is is awful. Like, oh yeah, what's in it? Uh, she she wants to you know make people stop eating meat. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like that that's what you got out of that, huh? So I think that was done with best intentions, and I I can tell you there there probably are some major problems with it being a first uh, go around. But we're seeing right as soon as the Texas thing started happening with the snowstorm, all of a sudden they wanted to blame it on the green do Green New Deal, which is not really a thing. It was just an idea so far. It, it hasn't been a res written down as a resolution or a bill or anything, but they're trying to blame what's happening in Texas on the on the Green New Deal as if it was a, or it's already a law and see what see what the consequences of this far left craziness is. So uh, the point is that anything you try to do that you think will affect the world in a positive way, somebody's going to see it as uh the worst possible idea ever and we need to stop this right yeah and it's just uh you know it takes us back to the hyper partisan uh culture that we're living in uh, now because you know a aoc as a freshman congresswoman would have been you know, not a very important person in the national body politic, but <laughs> she, uh, because she has a voice and she's, she's tried to speak out on, you know, these kind of critical issues, Fox News just jumped on her. I mean, first of all, you know, she's not Caucasian. All right. She's a woman. And so. And she's on the left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, most importantly, uh, but uh, so, you know, in, instead of uh, it just, you know, engaging with her and, you know, and, and, and I'm, I mean, I think, you know, sort of in, from a traditional party politics sort of uh, approach, you, people might have said, well, you know, wait a minute, you're just a, a freshman congresswoman. Why don't you wait your turn? Uh, before being trying to be a real spokesman for these important issues, um, but in in a way, you know, Fox helped to elevate her by you know picking her out as a target. So they, in, to some extent, they made her really more important than she probably would have been. Right. Um, 
Yeah, they, they definitely elevated her in a, in a way. And I know, uh, you know, when this is the problem when you get into uh, party stuff. Is And I have uh, been an outspoken uh, opponent of the two-party system, but I think it's, it's definitely better than a one-party system, which is where, where we're headed. Uh, and, you know, uh, whether, you, whether you're a Democrat or not, you don't want to see uh, the, the Republican Party totally destroyed or any opposition party totally destroyed if you're a fan of uh democracy and um you know a non-totalitarian state you don't want to see it become a one-party state which is where we're headed which is probably a bad thing and i know um party demise has been prematurely predicted before but i think the republicans if, if they can't figure out um how to get back to some sense of um normal discourse political discourse i i, I don't think they're going to survive i think it's going to splinter off into many parties and we're going to see really one dominant party for a lot of long time that's my crystal ball you got any crystal ball on your side yeah, what I think militates against that vision is that the Republican Party uh, in a lot of states and locales is still the dominant party. Here in Indiana, the Republican Party has a supermajority in our legislature. We we have a one-party system in Indiana now, and it's wow. Republicans, not the Democrat. We're sort of the opposite of California. And it does what it wants to. When the Republican leadership gets united, they can do whatever they want. The, the latest thing they've done is they um, just passed a bill. It was vetoed by the Republican governor because he's a kind of a centrist, decent kind of guy, which strips Indianapolis, the biggest city, which is now a blue city, of the right to make any uh, local ordinances on landlord-tenant law because the, the mayor and the city council wanted to get, continue to give renters a break because of the pandemic and lockdown. And that so pissed off the landlord uh, association, the trade association, that they got their Republican uh, you know, henchmen in the legislature to take that power away from our city. And then you think about this. Okay, wait, Republicans, aren't they for local government, small government? You know, <laughs> let, leave the local people alone? No. I mean, what they're for is whoever's giving them money. And so they completely violated one of the core principles of the Republican Party to for this purely partisan political purpose and they get away with it because they have a supermajority. Wow. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. I hadn't considered that um, many of the states still are um, in my neighborhood, my, where I am, even though I'm in a blue state, Long Island, and certainly the eastern part of Long Island where I am, is completely, it's, it's uh, Trump nation here. I mean, you know, pickup truck rallies and all and the boat rallies and all of it um so there is a good part of that and as long as they have that power in the states they also have the power to gerrymander districts and and, and influence the political the presidential election in in a big way too so yeah i'm, I'm probably premature in that uh, uh assessment that uh, but i do think they've done just by the fact that joe biden won got 81 million votes 
nobody Democrats don't like Joe Biden, <laughs> you know, and and uh, two far left people don't like Joe, Joe Biden. He's not far left enough for the very far left for or people who think you know he's a moderate or even a conservative Democrat in, in some sense. Uh, so and Republicans don't like him. So uh, and independents never trusted him to begin with. So it it was just the fact that he wasn't Trump that got him eighty one million votes. So I I I. I really just can't see them uh, repairing that situation anytime soon, especially if they're going to stay on that um, the course that they're on. Yeah, but before the last election, um, and, and really Trump, I, I think the Democrats were the party that is most likely to split because of the the progressive wing uh, has. You know, very some you know very hardcore ideologues uh, in it versus the moderates, and uh, that that fissure is one that's not going to go away. But Trump <laughs> united Democrats <laughs> and independents and rational former Republicans, so that and in a way, Biden was the perfect fit for that coalition because he. He's, He's a Reagan era, Reagan era Democrat, and they, and so so a lot of those independents and very moderate Republicans didn't feel as bad throwing their arms around him as they would Bernie, say, or, or Warren. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he was somebody who who didn't really strong stand strongly for any particular position, but he's a nice guy. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Nice guys finish first sometimes <laughs> when they're running against a really, really, really bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, uh, you know, we are up against the hour here, but I wanted to ask you about this because I've had many people on international guests uh, and people from Iceland, Norway, uh, Scandinavia, all that stuff, and then South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, you name it, all, all all over the country, South America, people are keenly aware of American politics. Now, when you go to, say, Nepal, and you, you're, you're hiking mountains with Sherpa guides and stuff, are they, do they have any consciousness of, of what goes on here in any... Uh, do, is America... Um, important to them and is American politics important to the people in that area? Well, it, it's changed dramatically. So the, the first time I was in Nepal was in 1995 and um, very few people had access to any kind of international news. So back then, no. I mean, about all they knew about America was what they learned by uh, word of mouth from people from visitors um and, and the, the tv stations were pretty much all out of india um so indian politics nepalis were familiar with um but now because uh you know social media is there i mean i have i i have facebook friends who just a few years ago were in a village that had no running water uh, no electricity. They were they were subsistence farmers, uh, and now they have cell phones and they're on Facebook. Uh, I mean, the the sort of the tech the tech revolution hit that country in a matter of years. I mean, so 
it's so so now yeah um i mean i have friends in nepal would ask me about trump and it's, it's always kind of funny the way they would approach it because nepalis are are generally very nice extremely polite people who you know who do not want to offend especially their friends and so they would approach it and they would say something like trump he is interesting man not <laughs> oh yes yeah, so they were they were wanting me to 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 give a tell as Man. to what I thought, and then they would feel comfortable and say, and then they would say something like, "Yeah, Trump, he a little bit crazy, isn't he?" <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what my thought in hearing you describe that. Now, uh, evolution is a slow process, right? And so uh, I think the tech revolution will um, be some sort of an evolution for people in who in the third world. And, uh, you know, what's the third world? Who knows? We're, we're, that's a concept. But people who were nice, you mentioned they were nice by nature, nice people. They've ex been exposed for to technology for 10, 20 years now. Uh, I think 30 or 40 years from now pass, and we won't be here for this, but I'm my crystal ball would say they're probably not going to be such nice people if they keep getting exposed to what's going on in the rest of the world and know what's going on in the world. It, uh, they're, they're probably going to be negatively affected by that. And so down the road, I think we'll, we'll probably see some really uh, unfortunate feedback or fallout from them being uh introduced to the modern world do you, you think i'm right yeah i do um <laughs> I I, in fact, this uh this is the sort of the central debate uh i had with my american and nepali friends when we were first starting the basa foundation which was to work on developing this area where you know no running water no electricity living the same way for thousand, the last thousand years and um should we even should we do this but the local people wanted to develop they wanted to enter the modern world and so we developed um a criteria a philosophy and a, and a criteria that reflected our philosophy on how to do that but just in you know 25 years of uh working with uh well yeah 25 years um I can see changes. I can see changes in the children. Like, here's a little anecdote. I think it's kind of sweet. So I'm teaching the kids how to play tic-tac-toe. And we're doing it in the dirt. You know, we don't have paper or pens or anything. I'm just drawing lines in the dirt and teaching them tic-tac-toe. And they're just loving it. They're laughing and giggling. And I'm winning every game because <laughs> they know how to do the thing where you go first. Uh, you can either win or if your your opponent knows what you're doing it'll be a draw so right. every will be a draw so i showed them my strategy and they got it and then we play again and i would still win and almost every time the ki the kids would just do their x's or, the, or their o's in a straight line they would never try to block me and so I think these kids aren't stupid. I mean, I could see, <laughs> but what I, eventually I realized winning had no value to them. They, they competition wasn't part of their culture. Um, that's changed.
Wow. So that, that was, you know, 20 years ago. Now I go over there and the, the kids want to play competitive games. Um, we used to play soccer without any goals because we didn't have goals. Um, and they there was no sense of even scoring. Now they keep score. Right. Um, and, you know, part of that is just exposure to com competitive Americans. Uh, but the other part of it is because they, they're now exposed to the outside world, they see that's how, you know, that's how these people on on their screens do things. And, um, yeah, it's, it's changing the culture. Um, we've tried to have as small uh, a cultural imprint as we can, um, but... It's it's inevitable. Well, I, I, without intent, you brought me back to a place where I was two and a half weeks ago. I had John Gorin on, who is uh, the uh, the um, holder of the flame of the John Wooden Foundation. John Wooden, the, the legendary basketball coach, uh, and he teaches John Wooden success philosophies and how to, his life philosophies because uh, Wooden was a very spiritual man. Uh, but I, I was surprised to find out that Wooden, in uh, all his speeches to all his teams and and beyond basketball and in, in leadership and business, whenever he spoke to anybody, he never spoke about winning. Uh, and we were taught the golden rule when we were young, and I'm sure you remember, that it's not important whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. And Wooden, who was one of the most winningest coaches in college basketball history, never focused on winning. He focused on building good people, playing the game to your best of your ability, playing it the right way, uh, playing by the rules. I think we've become a win-at-all-cost culture. And what you described it by the Nepalese is they – had the good sense to reject that win at all cost thing. Like, I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> that straight line, I'm thinking they're not going to block you. Uh, they're not going to win at all costs. That feels that a little bit dirty to them. And I think that's that's where we start to heal the world is uh, a, turning our back on the win at all cost culture because especially that all at all cost part of it, I think, is the most important. If we're selling our soul to win. And we're seeing that in our in the body politic in in America in a big way, but I think it also bleeds across all all uh, aspects of our culture. You, I'll give you the final word on that before we say goodnight. Yeah, I agree. And of course, John John Wooden is a great Hoosier, um, so he he is dear to the heart of many people that uh, here in Indiana. Um, he we have a statue to him in downtown Indianapolis. But uh, I, I had a wonderful experience of playing football in college for a coach that was very much like John Wooden, only unlike UCLA, we were losers. Um, <laughs> we, we went for two years without winning a game. And People Magazine wrote an article uh, titled The Worst Team in College Ball. They didn't even limit it to college football. <laughs> but um, my coach... Uh, his name was uh, Walter Hass, was this beautiful, wonderful man who said, we are scholar athletes and scholar is first. And the way he uh, taught us to play was to have fun, to get exercise, uh, to be good teammates, 
um, and then try to win. Uh, yeah. And we actually won the very last game that Coach Hass coached, which made 100 victories for him over his many decade long career and was the last college football game I played in. So it, in a way, it paid off. We got one victory in two years, but um, the people that, that played for Coach Hass came away with uh, the, the really uh, having instilled in us the value of what I think uh, sportsmanship and athletics really should be, and John Wooden taught. Right. Well, uh, and here you are uh, describing the legacy of a man who 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 was more uh, focused on on building good people, good men, than he was on building great football teams. And I think that that's a, a great testament that that you would even uh, bear that uh, testimonial about his legacy uh, tonight. I think that that proves his life was uh, was had good, a noble purpose and a good purpose so i appreciate you sharing that uh are you working on any books now or new books or we're just still uh pushing the, the latest books uh <laughs> no well i'm working on another one uh right now and it's, it's i've got a ways to go i'm probably about halfway through on it but it uh it relates to two ancestors of mine one who fought at the battle or massacre of Wounded Knee in the 7th Cavalry. Wow. He was a lieutenant. He was at the very center of uh, what started the battle and left a testament of it. He was shot, wounded the very next day in a mopping up skirmish and died 17 days later. The other ancestor at the very same time was engaged in friendly commercial trading with the last Potawatomi uh, in northern Indiana, and they gave him a beaded deerskin vest as a token of their appreciation for him helping them through a very hard winter where they might have starved if it wasn't for his help, and that vest has been handed down through the generations to me. So... The, st the book starts with those two contrasting uh, legacies uh, in dealing of whites with Native Americans and then jumps off from there into that whole twisted relationship. Wow, complicated world we live in. But yeah, I, and it, it's, it's funny that how to both your ancestors alive at the same time were dealing with uh native americans in very very opposite ways it, it, that's a fascinating story i look forward to to hearing about that when it's done of course i i welcome you back when it is done and even if be, before that anytime you want to come back it's always a pleasure talking to you I, I feel like i learned something tonight and i think i probably will anytime we, we speak so i just want to keep that out there and i wish you great success we'll continue to push your books the the, the website is jeffrasley.com the links are in the description to all also the link to his Amazon page where you can buy the books. Jeff, I wish you great success and, and please, you know, open door, please come back, you know, regularly because I do enjoy talking to you. Well, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it and I enjoy it too and I feel like I learn something each time we talk. Okay, well, then we're, we're, doing, we're accomplishing something. Uh, listen, uh, have, have a great night and you're, you're staying uh, basically safe over there. You got a lot of snow where you are now. 
we've got a lot of snow, which <laughs> personally I like because I love to walk outside, buckle on my skis and go cross country skiing. Oh, cool. Well, good for you. Yeah, I got a lot of snow too. I'm I'm very eager for springtime though this year. I really am. I'm looking forward to warming up and, and having some nice nice springtime outdoor uh festivities and playing music outdoor and all that stuff. So but uh definitely yeah, come on back. You you know where to find me and, and we'll 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 be in touch. So until then, stay well and uh I wish you great success and, and good health and Bye for now. This episode is brought to you by Put Me in the Story. Put Me in the Story creates personalized books for kids by taking best-selling children's picture books and well-loved characters and allowing you to create personalized books that make your child the star of the story alongside their favorite characters. Save 25% store-wide when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code SAVE25. We're also sponsored by Lovely. Lovely is your online stop for modern, irresistible, and affordable women's clothing. Never before has dressing yourself been so easy. Lovely's carefully curated selection of apparel, accessories, and outerwear are always on trend and always available at the web's best prices. Lovely is dedicated to delivering high-quality clothing to women that will make them look and feel their best. They believe every woman has the right to dress well and shouldn't have to spend a lot to love how she looks. They make it easy to wear outfits you love every day, giving you the confidence to take on the world. Lovely.com summer fashion trends are now 40% off, starting at just $5.99. Get an extra 18% off when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code JFT18. We're also sponsored by Vapor DNA. Founded in 2013, Vapor DNA is the premier online vape store offering an industry-leading selection of electronic cigarettes, e-liquids, and accessories. Their friendly and knowledgeable customer service team is always ready to provide the best customer service experience to ensure you find what you're looking for. They guarantee their products to be 100% genuine and at the lowest possible price. They're so confident in their selection and customer service, they offer their customers a 45-day refund policy. Save 20% when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code OrionQ. But I hope you enjoyed this program. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope you will check out Jeff's website and his Amazon page support his work. Hope you uh, got some value out of this program. I hope you come back and subscribe. Go to my YouTube channel. Subscribe to MindDogTV.com. Get on the mailing list and questions and comments. So until tomorrow at 1 p.m., I'm at Napa for the MindDogTV podcast. Man, I'm going to say goodnight. Goodnight, folks, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.